I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocalint Podcast. Microsoft has taken the wraps off its next generation Xbox and confirmed it will be called the Xbox Series X when it launches in one year's time. The company not only announced its upcoming console's official names, but also previewed the Xbox Series X bold new design and teased a couple of games that we can expect. Pocalint's Rick Henderson joins me to tell me more. Meanwhile, I caught up with Mark Livingston, the co-founder of Love Film, about his latest role as CEO of Pharmacy to You to talk about online prescriptions exciting, I know, and how healthcare is set to change the future thanks to the internet and AI. Apocalypse Reviews editor Mike Lowe is here to tell us all about the Sony RX107, the latest model of the popular RX100 series. Is it time to finally ditch your smartphone camera? I know, controversial, and go back to a compact camera to take your pictures, pictures in the future. But before all that, let's talk Xbox. Rick, what do we know from the announcement and what should we be getting excited about? Well, the main thing that the announcement, uh, it, which was at the Game Awards, actually showed was the actual style, the look and the design of the new Xbox and the name. The Xbox Series X, yeah, it's just X. Yeah, it's X a lot again. of Xs. <laughs> However, the actual box, I think, was the biggest story in the fact that it looked totally different to anything we've expected from a video games console before. In fact, it looks like a mini PC. And is that, do you think, because it now is a PC in terms of like the operating system and the and the capabilities and all the other stuff? Or is there something else to it? No, it's exactly that. One of my biggest worries when we were talking about the next generation of consoles is we're talking about a lot of power. We're talking about hardware that you normally would only find in a gaming PC. And anyone who has ever either built or owned a gaming PC or a gaming laptop will know that the biggest problem that they face is heat dissipation. The uh, processing chip and the graphics chips have so many processes running through them or uh, constantly that they get very, very hot. And in fact, the best gaming PCs have water cooling to ensure that the heat dissipation doesn't blow up the chip. Um, hmm. So what I was actually wondering was how Xbox and in, indeed Sony will um, cope with it with the PlayStation 5 is how that heat can be... Um, released so that the actual machine runs at its best without sounding like a helicopter landing pad. Yeah, because, I mean, that would be the worry, wouldn't it, is that not only are these things going to be so noisy, but also just so gigantically huge that, that A, they won't fit under your TV anymore <laughs> or uh, or anything else. So they've gone with a rectangle box. And PlayStation, they've gone with... What have they gone with? Well, we're quite, kind of waiting still. The dev kit of the PlayStation is quite otherworldly. It actually looks like a spaceship from a Star Wars um, movie um, with sort of like 
small grills all the way around a v-shape in the middle to allow as much air to get to the the chipset as possible whereas xbox has gone very simple it looks more like the monolith out of 2001 a space odyssey and the fact that it's a sort of like a, a just completely black box in fact it's the most box of an xbox you'll ever see <laughs> um, and at the top there's a grill um we haven't actually had one in the office yet but we have actually seen it sort of like demonstrated a, a, a at the Game Awards. And at the top, this grill, presumably, is where all the heat will dissipate. Now, they say that it will work horizontally just as well as it does vertically. Now, the, every all the pictures that we've seen show it standing on its end, like, like a PC mm. tower, like a desktop PC. That would probably be the best way to put it. If you put it in a cabinet where the heat isn't getting anywhere, it's really not going anywhere because the uh, the grill's too close to the side of the cabinet, for example, you could end up with a dead Xbox Series X or or an incredibly loud one and possibly even multiple game crashes. Now, that, that heat has to go somewhere, and I think that's the price now we're paying for power. We want the best console in the world. I think we've got to a point where we can no longer put it in an AV cabinet. That's the technology, which obviously there's still lots to come out. This is not. This is a device that's not coming out until this time next year. So we've still got plenty of time to do that. Games. Did they tell us anything about games, Rick? Yeah, so far we've known we know about two games that definitely come into it. There's Halo Infinite, which was actually su- suggested at E3 in June, um, and we've we've only seen a trailer for that. It's not it, not an awful lot of it, but we've seen a better trailer for Hellblade Two or Sonoa's Saga Hellblade Two, which is a sequel to what was an indie game by Ninja Theory, who were actually subsequently then bought by Xbox to be part of the Xbox Game Studios. Um, and it was always known, the previous game was known for its incredible lifelike graphics, but my lord, you haven't seen anything yet. If you look at the trailer for uh, Hellblade 2, it is quite extraordinary. Now, one of the things that the Xbox Series X is going to be capable of is 8K visuals. Now, you won't, might not wow. have a TV capable of that um, by that point, and 120 frames per second. Now, that's even more important because gamers... When, when you're gaming, the, the, the fraction of time between each frame is vitally important if you don't want to be shot in the noggin. So uh, 120 FPS has always been this sort of like this, 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 the holy grail of gaming. Um, but to do it at 8K as well is quite extraordinary. Now, you can see on YouTube the trailer for Hellblade 2 running in 4K and it is mind-blowing. The actual quality of the graphics is beyond anything we've seen for a very, very long time. And in fact, I would say only ever seen in the movies. And do you think that's where we're going to see this next generation going? Because it feels to me you've obviously got Google Stadia and you've got xCloud, which is Microsoft as well. And and you've got kind of, you know, mobile gaming on uh, the iPhone and Android and things like that. Do you think, you know, in the same way that compact cameras you know had to get much much better and so that really the only compact cameras you can buy are these kind of high range you know amazing sensors amazing lenses and all the other stuff to stand out from the smartphone cameras do you think we're having to see that here in the sense of it's had to get so much better to be able to fight off all the casual gaming and the streaming gaming and and things like that i think what we're seeing is options i think there's the, the gaming market is 
um, so expansive now. There's so many people game that you would never have imagined game before that you will see different options for different types of gamer. And I think, you know, you've got the mobile phone for the very casual gamer. You've got um, cloud gaming for those who prefer convenience over the super high-end stuff. And then you'll have the Xbox Series X and PS5, which are rumored to have very similar specs inside for the real top end of the gaming gaming spectrum, if you like. Um, so to name something from the 80s. But for me, what you will find at the highest end is that the game development times will end up being a lot longer and you won't see as many games coming out on those platforms of of quality because if you think about it if you have an 8k game and you have the amount of effort and 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 that it's going to take to actually develop a game of that quality that will actually hold up it's going to take years and years and years. We already see it with people like Rockstar and their Grand Theft Auto series where it takes seven years between games. You're going to see that more and more, in my opinion. That's that's what that next generation is. So therefore, I think that the cloud gaming and the casual gaming markets, they will be where the developers quickly turn over games. They get better, you know, you'll get a, a faster turnover, you'll get um, punchier, quicker games that you can just pick up and play. So I think there will be definitive areas that you can actually sign up to if you're a gamer. Are you excited? Is the people of the industry excited by this or are we all kind of a bit worried? I'm, I'm very excited. I'm actually, I'm even more excited that um, unlike we've had in the past, Xbox has already made a commitment to support every single accessory game and controller it's ever released for the Xbox One series on the Xbox Series X. So it's an upgrade path where you don't have to buy a new headset. You don't have to buy a new controller. You don't have to buy all the uh, new games even. Everything will just carry on working. So all you have to do is invest in the console. The one side effect to that is I reckon it's going to be extraordinarily expensive. Still to come, Mike gives us his opinion on the new Sony RX107. You know, ultimately, there's still definitely a market for it. People want this kind of stuff. Um, But it depends if you're that kind of person going down a quick snap social media route or you want something that you can use and learn and kind of get the precise shot and play around with that afterwards and, you know, look in at 100% scale and maybe even print things out and so on. It's, It's quite a different aim of the market I would think. Having already disrupted one industry, Mark Livingston, the co-founder of Love Film, the UK streaming movie service that was sold to Amazon to become Amazon Prime Video, is at it again. This time it's the pharma industry and in particular repeat prescriptions in the UK. With health services likely to dominate the next decade as companies like Google, Apple and Amazon wade in and things like AI becoming major part of the industry, what's in store for us when it comes to health? I started by asking what Pharmacy to You actually does. Yeah, so I've been running Pharmacy for You, uh, Pharmacy to You for the last three years. Effectively, what it does is, if you're on a repeat medication, uh, and the NHS provides it, and by the way, that's about forty-three percent of the UK population. What we do is we liaise with your GP surgery. We centrally dispense it from Leeds, and then for free, we send it to your home or any other address you nominate which basically just makes it far more convenient and you far more adherent as a patient. And do you think do you think people are ready to get their prescriptions online? Yeah, I do actually. I mean, it's when we looked at the sector 3 years ago, we were we were astounded to find out that the first kind of chemist opened their doors 300 years ago. And actually mm-hmm. if you think about all the innovation in pharmacy and healthcare, 
the fact that the way you actually pick up the last mile of your delivery of drug and the fact that it hasn't changed in 300 years and that the whole world has changed in the way that you receive things told us that people were really up for and wanted a new way of receiving drugs. And certainly our growth over the last three years have been, has been real evidence that there is a real latent demand for it. And obviously one of the concerns that, you know, online versus the high street and all the other stuff at the moment, how, how do you see this affecting the high street pharmacy? You know, the sort of Lloyd's and the Boots of this world. So, so there are about 12,000 pharmacies in England. Um, and basically every pharmacy is a private business, but operates under a community pharmacy contract. And effectively last or this summer just gone, uh, there was a new pharmacy contract issued, which runs for five years. And what it talks about is distance dispensing at scale, harnessing the kind of uber efficiencies of scale and also the clinical accuracy that, that distance dispensing adds whilst moving or enabling community pharmacy to move to more service-based propositions. Community pharmacy obviously has some fabulous uh, clinicians within it and hmm. GP surgeries are under ever-growing amounts of pressure. So the idea is that community pharmacy acts as a triage for GP surgeries by offering more services and we play our part in repeat medication just by distance dispensing at its scale. So we very much see ourselves as part of an emerging new jigsaw of how community and pharmacy work hand in glove. So kind of rather than the, you know, dealing with, I suppose you could say dealing with the boring stuff, you know, yeah. in a similar way that online sales are great for buying, you know, when it first started, we're great for buying CDs or DVDs because you didn't need to go to your local music store to work out you know, whether they had the copy of that album or not, because it was there. Is is that what you're kind of implying, that, that you're hoping that people will still go to their local pharmacy if they've got, you know, an issue that they don't necessarily need to escalate to a GP, but that for when they need to keep on going back and back and back, that they would come to you instead? Yeah, I think you should come and be our corporate PR man, because that is exactly how we think of ourselves. <laughs> right. And do you so do you just deal with pharmacies um, repeat subscriptions yourself or do you is there other things that are going on so at the moment we just deal with repeat medication but as i've said that's a that's an eight billion pound business in england alone so that's enough to kind of get our teeth into we we are we are growing at a rapid rate of knots we've grown by 270 odd percent in the last 18 months and we continue to grow by 20 odd thousand patients a month so we're growing quite rapidly and we're very, very focused. We want to get repeat medications right and continue to scale that. But as we scale, so we're looking at other services that we may be able to add in addition to repeat medication. An example of that is a medical use review, which at the moment is done physically in a pharmacy. We believe we could do it over telephony or through hotmail or live chat or questionnaire as well and more conveniently than possibly an MUR being done in a store. So there are aspects of service that we believe we can add on to our proposition as we grow. You know, obviously, as a nation, we're, we want to be more on, you know, au fait with technology and online, but there's still a lot of people out there that haven't got a clue what an iPhone is or how an Android works or, or all these things. How, how does that do they get to use the service as well? Yeah, that, that's a bit of a sacred cow for us, Stuart, because we, we definitely believed that three years ago. But some of our demographics and some of our cohorts of customers who you may have presupposed are not that technically savvy are as, as adept at using an iPad 
um, for a way of you know, principal communication as they are a telephone these days. So first of all, we don't subscribe to the belief that the older you are, the less technically enabled you are. And secondly, we offer, you know, you can text us, you can phone us, you can write to us, you can live chat with us, you name it. We offer any access to any demographic or cohort. But actually, we find people progressively a lot more technically savvy. And, you know, you can operate this service by text message if you wish. We offer all ways of, of accessing us. Now, one of those things is, you know, when you talk about healthcare online and, and, and those kind of areas, it's one of those sort of industries that's getting a lot of attention. There's a lot more interest from some of the bigger American companies, such as Amazon, looking to move into the market. You know, Google are looking at healthcare. They've obviously just bought Fitbit or trying to buy Fitbit to get all the access to their data. Do you think that's a good thing? Is that where we're likely to see that eventually it will just become, you know, that Amazon will be dispensing drugs? I mean, Amazon already are dispensing drugs in the US as they acquired a company called PillPack um, beginning of last year from memory. So so Amazon already dispensed drugs in the US. And I think one would imagine that it's only a matter of time before they dispense drugs elsewhere in the world, whether or not it's the UK, I don't know. But but I think I think major technology companies are thinking what is a larger market above and beyond technology and of course healthcare may not come as much surprised you to learn is is by some amazing multiple and i can't remember the exact multiple larger than the entire technology market put together so health at the end of the day is arguably the most important service or product that you can offer anyone and i think everyone struggles to find the most important engagement point with consumers and health is the logical place coupled with the fact that at a consumer end i think it's been very undisrupted and, you know, great consumer companies are finding ways to consumerize healthcare. Do you see that health being a dominant force over the next decade within the tech industry as more companies embrace it or try to answer questions that we haven't done in the past? Uh, absolutely. Is it is it number one? I'm not sure. But is it within the three? I would I would bet my house and all I own on it. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of chat about AI and things like that. Is how much is AI influenced into your business about understanding about prescriptions or offering further advice on prescriptions? Or you know, is it just a case of you're just someone comes to you with a prescription and says, "I need this. Can you serve it to me?" Or are there sort of some technologies behind it to say, "Well, look, these guys, this guy's been on this prescription for a long time. Does he need to be still? Do you know? Is there any other thing underlining that in the background?" Yeah. It's a great question, Stuart, and and the answer is yes. We use AI to dispense about 60% of our prescriptions, and it works in exactly the way you've described it. If if you're on a long-term repeat prescription and your GP does not wish to have any um, intervention on that prescription and your medical conditions have not changed, then we're able to dispense a lot of what we do using AI, which is all about looking at all of those kind of data points before we prescribe and that has huge efficiencies for us that isn't necessarily replicated in you know traditional bricks and mortar community pharmacy now one of your uh, previous companies was love film uh yeah disrupted yeah. the uh video rental market you don't see many video rental shops on the high street anymore <laughs> do you see there are any similarities between pharmacies to you and and love film there are similarities and equally there are differences. The similarities are 
we're doing something that the consumer wants. We're doing something that the consumer appreciates and hasn't had before. And that's really good. But unlike the video industry, I don't see us as being the death knell for community pharmacy. In fact, I see us as being the reverse, a real liberator for community pharmacy to leverage and, and pivot their business a lot more into services. So there are similarities, but there are also differences as well. Now, the last business, Love Film, you ended up selling to Amazon. We talked about Amazon, obviously, selling you know drugs in the US and, and, and big companies like that having aspirations. Do you think that would be a, a play in the, in the long run? Well, I mean, we're certainly not building a company you know, with the sole purpose of selling it to Amazon. We're building a great company and um, great companies sometimes get sold to many buyers, um, um, Amazon being one. But we're not we're not in any way hedging our bets on Amazon. We're hedging our bets on we'll just build a brilliant business. And if you build brilliant businesses, as I say, they often have suitors. And and what's next for pharmacy to you? What, what's the plans over the next couple of years? Is it or is well, it the, the really exciting thing we've got going on next year? Is we open up our next facility at the moment. We centrally dispense from Le- from Leeds, but we're building a facility which ultimately will be six times larger in capacity than Leeds, and that opens up in Leicester. And we're re- we're fitting it out now, and we'll be operational by around about September next year. So. That's a really exciting development for us because if you take Leeds and Leicester together, we then have a an enormous amount of capacity, which means that we can grow our business as aggressively and as quickly as we wish. And there is some, you know, those two locations are for in the UK terms quite close to each other. Is there is there a reason for that? The the location of, of Leicester is all about being within thirty miles of the Royal Mail's largest central distribution point which is in uh daventry and uh, you have to be within 30 miles to get the latest and earliest pickups and drop-offs so we've based leicester basically so that we can inject into daventry and daventry i believe is subject to further capex by the royal mail to continue to keep it as the most state-of-the-art ingest point into the royal mail bottom line is we can get our drugs as quickly as possible through the raw mail to our end consumer, which is, of course, what we want to do. It's no secret smartphones have done some serious damage to the compact camera market over the recent time. The age-old adage that the best camera is the one you have in the pocket rings true, especially in the world of triple and quadruple camera smartphones that have excellent imaging processing capabilities. But compact cameras aren't quite extinct just yet, though. Fierce competition from phones has meant the camera makers need to build in really good reasons to buy a compact camera. And no company has championed this effort more than Sony with its RX100 series. Its new camera, the RX100 M7, proves just that. But should it be considered? Mike is here to tell us more. I mean, this is always a really difficult argument because some people will be more than happy to snap in with their phone. And that is perfectly, perfectly fine. I don't have any problem with that. A lot of people are actually enthusiasts about pictures you know they want to take something a bit more special a bit more detailed have more control have more to play with and really to do that you need you need a lot more you need you know dedicated features you need dedicated controls and quicker ways of doing things Um, and really what sony does with the rx100 which you know this is what at least seven years old the series has been going for a long time um 
it kind of tries to make the smallest camera that it can with a large, large-ish right. sensor. And that just improves the quality, but gives you all that control in something that really sort of face-on-face is no bigger than a phone in your pocket. It's just obviously a bit fatter. And so what are the, what are the good bits? What do, you, what do you really like about this camera? The thing they always did with this is when you look at it, it just looks like a normal compact camera. Um, but it's got this little switch on the side and that pops out a little viewfinder. Um, and you can pull that out and then use that as one way of shooting. And if you're not familiar, then then the reason really for using a viewfinder is, um, let's say in bright sunlight, you might not be able to see what on earth is going on. Right. Like if you've got your phone out and you're trying to take a photo of a mate and actually the sun's reflecting off it and you've got no idea like what the exposure level is and, and so on. When you've got the viewfinder, it kind of hides that all away. So it just you don't have that sunlight bother. You can see exactly what you're framing. You can see, you know, um, you can put little graphs and stuff on an overlay of the image to see how it's going to look before you've taken it um, and just gives you a better idea, better control. Won't be for everybody, but it's just one of those features that it's kind of like a, a push to that older traditional kind of style that you get with a DSLR and so on being a very tiny form factor. Um, and that really is one of the, the things they've always pushed in this series and it's it's run along every model. Um, with this one, the Mark 7, it's... Um, it's actually not dramatically different from, from the Mark VI that came before. So because they've kind of refined this series so much, there's not that much you can really continue to, to push and change. Um, so Sony's kind of gone about it in a, uh, a slightly more slightly more of an approach towards videographers or, or vloggers or whatever you want to call them. Um, so there's a little microphone input and you can flip the screen like all the way around 180 degrees. So you can face it yourself, be that in your hand or right. I don't know, on a selfie stick or a little micro, you know, little pod or whatever. Um, so it's really focused towards that kind of market, um, which is something Canon has been trying to push into as well. Um, and really, I think it addresses a few of those things that, that those kind of shooters have been wanting um, in addition to how good it is as a, a stills camera. Now it can't be all good though. So what's the things, what's, what does, what did it get wrong? What does it get wrong? It's really expensive. <laughs> It doesn't, it, it kind of has to be because of what, what you're getting, you know. Um, I can't remember the exact price. I know it's over a thousand pounds. And for most people, that would just seem entirely unnecessary. But it really depends if you're kind of that enthusiast. If you want to be that, that keen photographer, then it's something you can carry around in a little pocket or little bag or whatever and barely notice right. it. Um, it. You know, it won't be for everyone at all. Um, it, it doesn't really get anything massively wrong. The battery life perhaps is a little bit, um, a little bit limited because obviously it's a small camera, um, so it doesn't last for an age. But really, this can be kind of nitpicking to find problems. It, it, it's just a very impressive little bit of kit. And do you think it's one of those things where I know you've talked about how they've tried to make it as small as possible, so you know you can put it in your pocket. But reality is, just you're carrying a camera around with you. So do you think they they need to make it as small? Or is, does you know is there any restrictions by doing that, or is it just a case of well, it's just the size it is because it is. I guess there's two schools of thought to that really. Um, you know, some people it was kind of an era when companies tried to make everything absolutely tiny, and it kind of reached the point where you can't hold things properly, or you know, buttons become literally too small, and you can't really feel your way around them properly. And, and the buttons on this are actually quite small, but I suppose that's another tiny little complaint. Um, yeah, I, and that kind of reversed its way a little bit in, in the market. They started bringing out cameras that had bigger grips and were a bit more, you know, body-led, 
um, because ultimately that's what people want. They want that kind of control and just ease in the hand. It just makes sense to have something that just fits and you can use as a tool. And I think as, um, as smartphones have become so popular, that's that kind of thing you can just grab and snap with. Whereas you get a camera, you want it to be comfortable for potentially hours of use if you're doing like a proper shoot. You know, there's kind of a slight skew towards a more pro market, I suppose. And this camera, really, the, the RX100 is more that kind of spare little camera you might carry in a pocket. So based on this, if uh, this isn't necessarily your first choice, is there other things that you can consider? And, you know, ultimately, I suppose, do phones come anywhere close to the performance this can deliver? Um, you know, phones are improving all the time, but the thing that they, they can't really challenge is the fact that in the, the RX100, you've got what they call a one-inch sensor. doesn't mean it's physically one-inch, it's just an old terminology, but that, that physically is way larger than a sensor that you're going to get in a camera phone. It kind of means the equivalent pixels that you get are just physically bigger, so they can pick up light way better and just gives you a lot more room for, for processing. So the, the capture you can get in low light is great. Also, there's a zoom lens on this as well, so you can kind of do wide angle through to a medium tele length, um, which phones, although they're starting to introduce um, some sort of tele lenses, the quality is just not even nearly as good as, as you get from, from a camera like this. You know, ultimately, there's still definitely a market for it. People want this kind of stuff. Um, but it depends if you're that kind of person going down a quick snap social media route or you want something that you can use and learn and kind of get the precise shot and play around with that afterwards and, you know, look in at 100% scale and maybe even print things out and so on. It's, it's quite a different aim of the market, I would think. That's it for this week's show, and I'll be back on the 3rd of January with a special 2020 predictions episode looking at what's in store with the likes of Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, and Amazon in the next 12 months. Until then, pip-pip. <laughs>